This is the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast, episode number six. In this podcast, we feature performance coach and PhD student Keith Scruggs. Keith is a PhD student in motor learning and behavioral sciences at the University of South Carolina. Prior to studying at USC, Keith worked within the sport physiology and performance department at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York, working with bobsled and skeleton. Keith earned a master's degree from East Tennessee State University under Dr. Mike Stone and Dr. Meg Stone and worked with ETSU track and field program. So, Keith, thanks for coming on the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Um, give us a little bit of a background. Talk about your start as a coach, your grad studies, and your current Ph.D. program. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a, an honor and privilege to do this. Um, my background, I started as a coach. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. Um, in short, uh, my athletic career was kind of cut short in, in high school toward ICL my senior year, uh, playing football. Some residual issues into my athletic career uh, with baseball during my sophomore year of college. Uh, and then I was moments away from packing up, heading to the home, uh, heading home to my parents' house uh, when a British classmate of mine on the track team said, uh, "said you know you look like a hammer thrower." And I was like, you know, being a redneck that I was from Western North Carolina, I thought that uh, a hammer was like a hammer and a nail. And I was like, yeah, you know, I could probably throw a hammer pretty far. Uh, so I went out to track that day, and I became a, uh, a student of track and field. And I guess you could say that I uh, became an athlete of track and field as well. Uh, so my coaching career actually began uh, when my athletic career ended abruptly my senior year at UNC Asheville. Uh, from a dumb decision on my part, playing competitive flag football, um, and I tore my rotator cuff's career labrum. Field opened my eyes to training, and in turn, it opened up the door to strength and conditioning. Um, I started realizing the similarities in movements and energy demands across a multitude of sports. While, uh, while I was bombarding my original mentors, my first mentors, and Joel Williams, who's uh, still a track coach at UNC Asheville, and uh, Dr. Brad DeWeese, who is now at East Tennessee State University with uh, Doc and Meg Stone. Uh, but I would bombard them daily with questions regarding training do's and don'ts. And um, you know, while I was rehabbing my shoulder for my shoulder surgery, um, I asked Brad in administration if I could earned my scholarship that year by becoming an assistant strength conditioning coach. And of course, they, they said yes. Uh, so that year, one of my teammates and I, uh, Simon Hockey, who's an assistant strength coach at USC uh, with football, uh, we were both introduced to the life of strength conditioning. Um, so that's when I also realized that track and field, at least in my eyes, is the mother of all sports event can be broken down and applied to nearly every sport in some capacity. Uh, and then from there, you can you know, zoom in on the specifics of each sport. Uh, on top of that, track and field is, is what I consider the birth of sport science, uh, as you know, each event is evaluated in every meet. Uh, 
is a field test. You know, did our training up to that point of competition allow us to uh, exhibit a level of athleticism that is satisfactory in comparison to prior uh, showings, prior track meets? Uh, you know, poor training has nowhere to hide in the sport of track and field. So, you know, that experience has guided me to constantly try to perfect my craft as a coach and as a strength conditioning coach. Um, but, you know, aside from there, uh, after UNC Asheville, um, Joel and Brad both recommended that I pursue my master's degree at East Tennessee State University uh, as under Dr. Mike Stone. Um, so that was the next step in my journey. Uh, while I was there, I was privileged to be uh, Meg Ritchie Stone's last graduate assistant while she was actively coaching. So I'll joke around and say that I ran her out of coaching, so that was her last GA. Uh, now she's taking on more administrative duties at East Tennessee State University with their Olympic training site. Um, while I was at ETSU, I was active in uh, training for the track and field team. While observing and helping out with other sports, such as uh, soccer, where Howard Gray, uh, now the sports scientist at Texas A&M, uh, he was there during my period at ETSU, uh, and also helped in the sports science lab, where I was able to enhance my understanding of the underlying physiological constructs that enable or inhibit athletic performance output. Uh, from ETSU, I uh, then followed Dr. Brad DeWeese uh, up to the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York, where I served in a similar role. It was uh, kind of a blend of strength and conditioning and sports science. That's uh, where we were doing our athlete monitoring and training uh, our competitive bobsled skeleton luge athletes going to the Sochi Olympics. So, after that, I came back down south, uh, realized that the cold winters just weren't for me. So as a means to an end, I decided to per, uh, pursue my PhD uh, in the collegiate setting where I feel like I am happiest as a coach and uh, uh, now at the University of South Carolina. Uh, I'm in the PhD program for motor development and uh, uh, assistant strength coach with the uh, uh, working with beach volleyball and track and field specifically. Yeah, so that's um, you know pretty awesome. You get to pursue you know PhD and coach simultaneously, and I'm I'm sure that's a very crazy, hectic lifestyle, but it's you know it's one that's probably very fulfilling in the end. Um, so in terms of uh, you know coaching, what what is your definition of a coach and what should that role of a coach be in terms of athletics and um, sports science? Yeah, uh, you know, balancing the schedule of being a PhD student and being a coach is definitely difficult at times. Uh, I just want to tell everyone that I'm a full-time strength conditioning coach uh, and a part-time PhD student. But I try to take the acquired knowledge from the program and, and apply it, which I think everyone should do. You don't necessarily have to be a true student to do that, to be a, to be a student. Uh, the one thing that I like about motor development is it, you know, it syndicates the physiological, biomechanical, neuromuscular, maturational, environmental components of athletic development. Uh, you know, but as a coach, we must boil down the, the complexity of each discipline to a, a tasteful reduction of applied coaching that can be tolerated given our athletes the task and environment. So as coaches, I feel like 
responsibility of building the desired dynamics of the team setting. You know, but it, it, it can't be forced, at least not perceivably forced. Um, a coach should never be deceitful, nor should a coach take a full-blown, you know, laissez-faire approach. Uh, a coach should take more of like a captain-like role. Before setting sail on a, on a journey, uh, in our case, a journey of training, all possible scenarios should be evaluated. You know, a captain would go inspect the ship. They would, you know, inspect and talk to the crew. They would look at potential weather patterns and so on. Appropriate paths should be detailed and documented, but you know you got to have contingency plans uh, in place in, in case there's an unforeseen circumstance that arises. And you know and a good captain will steer clear of any path at all costs. So you know nothing can replace the intuition of a of a good captain to see or a, a good coach in the field, but a good captain will also utilize technology you know within their means to aid in educated decision-making about the training process. Uh, you know, if you have that technology, whether it's heart rate monitors, it's counterpole, GPS, it's uh, gym aware, Tendo, whatever you have, uh, you know, if you have access to that, it would be wise to find a way to use it to help make those educated decisions. Um, you know, and, and sure, the role of a coach is to check your ego at the door, establish a positive and energetic an effective training environment, and do whatever it takes to provide your athletes with a safe path to success. If you're ever questioning if your methods, if your methods or approach in training is effective, all you have to do is just you know, take a step back. Put yourself in the shoes of your athletes. Would you want to be coached by you? If that's a yes, keep polishing your craft and move forward. If that answer is a no, you may want to have an intervention with yourself and find a best way to be effective given your skills, your attributes, your content knowledge, and the scenario. You know, and, and never be afraid to ask for help. In, in my experience, the, the coaching network is full of willing and able mentors and or resources. Uh, you know, I think we can all do a better job utilizing who and what is available to us. You know, it only serve to impact and strengthen our field. Yeah, and, and you mentioned there um, the you know technology and intuition, and that has has in my opinion been a recent debate of do we use technology, do we fall back on our intuition, and I think you had a nice middle view of that is use both, but use them within the constraints of what you can. Um, so to kind of move forward here, um, these questions are a little bit more geared towards. Uh, probably your your PhD role or your current studies. Um, so the first time I've I met you was way back in a USA Track and Field Level One three or four years ago, um, and I just recently at the High Performance Athletic Development Clinic heard you speak um, on a lot of what you're doing, and you mentioned that there are three controllable factors: one being the athlete environment, and thirdly the task. Um, and you mentioned the athlete is hard to control. Um, so how can we change the environment and the task uh, to fit the athletes? All right, yeah, so this kind of falls in line with uh, some of the stuff that I, I'm doing my PhD work uh, in motor development. And this is just one of the, one of the theories and, and concepts that really stood out to me as being uh, useful in a coaching setting. Uh, so the three controllable factors, you have the athlete or what Dr. Carl Newell says is the organism, uh, the environment, 
environment and the test. So I've just simply uh, modified uh, Dr. Carl Newell's constraints theory in the late 80s. Um, so I've modified it, making it geared towards coaching. So you start by profiling the athletes or athletes. Uh, who are they? Where are they from? What's their training age? What's their personality? What motivates them? Are there prior injuries and issues that you need to be aware of? What do the you know, what do their current movement patterns look like? You know, et cetera and so on. So the more that we know about our athletes as athletes and more importantly as people, our decision regarding the task and environment will be. So athletes are people. People have personalities. They have certain traits. They have certain abilities. They have certain inabilities. People are hard to control. They are what they are. You know, but if we uh, if we present people with opportunities to exhibit greatness, then they're going to be able to you know, go down that path in, in training. So that's where the coach steps in. Uh, the environment has attributes that are given. So uh, the environment has attributes that are that are you know you can't change, but they also have attributes that are malleable. Um, so for me, an example of that would be I live in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, it is blistering hot in the summertime. That's a part of the environment that I just cannot change. I can, however, control for it. I can change or manage when and where we practice. We have we can have our conditioning sessions early and outside when it's not too hot, or we can have them later in the day. We can do it inside in the air conditioning. Uh, so that's an example of how parts of the environment are valuable and some are not. Uh, but we can control for all those factors. Now, are we going to practice uh, on a hard surface today? Are we going to practice on turf, on grass, on sand, on a hill? All things that I can manipulate and plan for the day-to-day process leads into the you know the annual plan or whatever you want to call it, uh, the micro cycle. Whatever you're at in your training process, you can plan for many, many factors in the environment. Now, like I said earlier, uh, I just put a twist on Dr. Uh, Dr. Newell's original theory and adapted it towards coaching. And uh, in athletics, I strongly feel that a major part of the environment is the climate. Uh, and, and the climate that is created as a coach. So do you bring the energy each and every day? Do you compose yourself professionally? Do you uh, have and hold certain standards for yourself and for your athlete? What kind of music do you play during the training session, if any? Um, what is the tone of your voice when giving instruction or feedback to athletes? Again, you know, these are all controllable factors by the coach that are impactful to individuals uh, and, and their personality, and it's impactful to the team and to the culture. And it's also very impactful to the confidence and the perception of ability for the teams and athletes that you work with. You know, this same thing falls into the, the task. You know, what do you want them to do? Is it developmentally appropriate? Have you prepared them for it in prior training sessions or prior training periods? Now, if not, you have alternative exercises or a plan in place that will help them achieve the same or similar output. Uh, what restrictions are you placing upon, uh, upon the athletes? Now, uh, for example, restrictions would be what's their set and rep counts, uh, what's the estimated volume loads, relative intensity, rest intervals, and so on. You know, again, all of these are controllable factors by the by the coach, um, and these are all things you have to consider.
Sure. And everything that you do, every, every part of planning. So uh, prior to training and intervention, you have to think about all of these factors of the task and environment and what we're, uh, what we're trying to put in there. So we have to know what we're imposing upon and exposing our athletes to because ultimately those influence them on a personal level as the only control we may have as a coach to manipulate or punish an athlete. And our goal should be to ensure that the, that the experience is positive on all the courts. Yeah, and, and you very, very slightly you touched on feedback. So we're going to jump a couple questions here um, and touch on some feedback. Um, what are some of the best ways that you find to use feedback um, when we're considering a novice versus an elite athlete? And then in terms of quality versus quantity of feedback? Uh, yeah, so you know, feedback is important. And that's, like I said, it, it all comes down to the tone of the voice that you have. Uh, how much is it? You give internal cues, you give external cues. Uh, so feedback can make or break the training session depending on how it's implemented and how it's used. Uh, and I think a lot of times, coaches, we get stuck in our silos and we just give one type of feedback or one one way of giving feedback or one cue when things are going to fit every way, uh, everyone. So, you know, quality always trumps quantity during a training session. So that's just the KISS method. You know, keep things simple, yet keep them effective. Uh, be sure the feedback and cues aren't necessarily things you want to see as a coach, but rather they should be, uh, they should be, what an athlete needs to feel during that movement. Uh, so feedback should be concise during training in order to reduce the you know, confusion and to maintain flow of practice. Now, after a training session is when you may want to elaborate further in regards to the feedback given during a session. Like, hey, you know, I was telling you this while you were doing this, uh, this high pull. Um, you know, maybe next time I'm going to keep an eye on it, but I'm going to remind you to do this instead or you know, enhance this or get more out of this movement. So keep it simple while they're doing the movement and elaborate more at the end of the session or at the end of that movement. Uh, so for a novice, you know, we may expand upon the relatedness of the task to an experience that they're already comfortable with. So, you know, uh, for me, like I, I teach, um, I teach RDLs like my, my first movement that I teach. You can't RDL, you can't hit hands, you can't do a front squat, back squat, you can't do hand clean, et cetera, and so on. Uh, so I teach them that movement, but to get them in the right position, I relate it to other tasks. So, hey, your feet, where should your feet be? Like, where would you jump for a rebound in basketball? Oh, okay, yep, you fix your feet, that's where you jump from, that's your power stance. Anytime I say, hey, power position, power stance, you go into a, a rebound, your jump stance, your jump position. So you relate it back to tasks that they're already comfortable with so that they can find a way to relate it to something else that they already do that they already know. Um, we got to find a way to illuminate the relationship to something they're, you know, they're already familiar with and, and generally more enthusiastic about. They're, a lot of times people are more enthusiastic about jumping up for a rebound than doing an RDL or a, a high pull. Uh, so you know, for an expert, I would recommend the same approach as with a novice, but there will be those athletes that can handle and welcome, you know, the nerdy side of sport. And, you know, if they ask for more greater detail uh, and they can handle that kind of content, then give it to them. Uh, if they're curious, and you know, you may learn from your athletes. A lot of times with some of the Olympic and uh, professional athletes that I've worked with, and even some of the collegiate athletes that are really, really smart, 
I've learned from them and found other ways to relate those movements to other tasks. So, you know, don't disregard um, learning from your athletes as well. Yeah, and uh, so to kind of move on uh, to our next question here is uh, motor relationships. Um, and you, I believe, spoke about this um, a couple months back at the clinic and how diversification of skills uh, during youth development uh, or helps develop into specific skills later on in their career. Yeah, so um, I think first we must define common associations among sports. Uh, so, and how many sports do we see what I consider the three basic fundamentals? Uh, you see strike, throw, and catch in some capacity in a lot of sports. In baseball, you strike a ball, you catch a ball, you throw a ball. In soccer, you strike a ball with a foot. You can catch a ball with a foot or hands if you're a goalie. And you throw a ball overhead with soccer throw-ins. You strike the ball at the net or at a serve. You catch a ball when setting, you know, or you can also see that as striking. It's still a hand-eye coordination component. And also the you know, throw a ball, which can be seen as serving, setting, or spiking. It goes on from there. And aside from that, you have run, jump, and stop which can be witnessed in virtually every sport as well. Um, you know, sports are more similar than they are different when we take them down to the roots. Uh, with that being said, you know, essentially being a multi-sport athlete early on in development, you're, you're enhancing the same skill sets via a different task in a different environment. But in essence, that resolves the training variability issue itself. You're getting the same movements, the same tasks, similar movements, similar tasks in different environments or similar environments. You know, throwing both hands overhead with uh, a soccer throw-in versus, you know, throwing a baseball or throwing a football. You're still throwing and learning how to use your body to get the most out of it, but that's the variability part for young athletes. So the athlete's bandwidth of error for those tasks become more narrow as a byproduct of exposure in various settings and their ability to read their body the ability to auto-regulate and self-organize their body given the task, and, uh, and it becomes more advanced in time. Now, these abilities are transferable to literally every sport once an athlete realizes, or even a coach realizes, which sport or sports that athlete is better at. Some will have better instinct for a particular sport. Some will have greater passion for a particular sport. So skill and desire will help guide the decision to specialize in due time. You know, however, the, the development of the underlying factors behind the skill set for that desired sport is developed through the diversification and variability process of playing multi, multi sports. Yeah, and so you touched on in, in that previous question the really some lead into the next two. Um, on specializing and on practice variability. So we'll start with uh, specializing in sport. Is you know in different sports, uh, you do see uh, in textbooks you see age age brackets of when to specialize for sports. Now, what's your take on that, and how do you decide when the right time is to specialize in a sport? All right. So this question, I may make some friends and I may make some enemies, but it is what it is. Uh, I think early participation, or at least early exposure, is desirable in nearly every sport. So, you know, in actuality, early specialization is a subjective association that we've tied to certain sports. 
you take gymnastics for example uh, the, you know, the judge the judges base scores on certain movements they're more easily achieved by uh, early pubescent athletes uh, for the most part for some of them before advanced but are they truly better at them and that's the question we must ask ourselves when asking our youth athletes to perform certain tasks you know during the Rio game this past summer I was just as fired up as everyone else to watch gymnastics especially our, our women's team but at the same time, I was forced to ask myself, as a professional, should these requirements be imposed upon these athletes at their given stage of development? You know, could we or should we update the subjective criteria for the sport? Now, at this point, I think the sport is what it is, and we must accept it, I guess. Uh, but you know, generally speaking, the right time to specialize for other sports is when the diversification of skill development has reached its pinnacle. When training and participation uh, of multiple sports at a competitive level no longer assist in enhancing fundamental motor skills. So when that added variability of those movements and skill no longer catapult that athlete forward. Uh, you know, for some athletes that may be age 14. For others that may be age 25. It's difficult to put a timeline on specialization you know, as, as each athlete develops and matures at unique rates. And, you know, for personal desire for a particular sport may be acquired at different unique times as well. Um, so in short, you know, I'll give the answer that no one likes to hear, but nine times out of ten is the correct answer in regards to sport. It depends when someone should specialize. Uh, you know, but I'd say that it's a rarity that any child needs to specialize in any field and ball-related sport before age 14. Now, in my opinion, baseball and volleyball seem, the biggest, seem to be the biggest culprits in the United States, and it's largely money-driven, and parents hang their hats on the hopes and dreams that their sons or daughters will be the next big thing. Uh, you know, without getting too far off topic, I believe that it's a societal uh, epidemic. Parents of today's generation want, you know, they, they desperately want to provide their children with every opportunity to be successful, but it comes at fault. The children never get the chance to fail and succeed on their own. They never grasp the concepts of try and do. They never, uh, it, they are being developed to be injury prone, difficult to coach, uh, you know, quote, end quote, athletes. You know, I apologize for the rant, but, you know, to give your kids every opportunity to be successful and allow them to figure out how to be successful in terms of motor development. Let them try different sports. Let them figure out what they actually like and also allow them to polish up their, their you know, motor skills. Throw, jump, strike, stop. Now, I haven't seen this in the literature, um, uh, but this is my take on when kids go from being a multi-sport athlete to starting to specialize, uh, as they start narrowing down their sport activities from you know a few sports uh, to one station is to at least supplement the, a healthy portion of that lost volume or time of being a multi-sport athlete with physical preparation, strength conditioning, long-term athlete development, whatever you want to call it. But if you take time and you take development away somewhere, their body has acclimated to that. As long as they're safe, they're not overtrained, they don't have any inju injuries or issues. But if you take that time and supplementation away of training, you need to supplement it somewhere else. Um, and that's where you know the strength and conditioning field kind of takes off with that. So now that they have a diversification of their skill set, 
now they need to have a diversification of their physical ability and that goes from more general to specific over time. You know, skill development is the ultimate focus, however, we must remember that the young body of an athlete is still learning how to fulfill the demands placed upon it at a higher level of sport participation. Yeah, and you touched on, so the second part of that is you touched on practice variability uh, a couple questions ago. And what is your view on the role of practice variability as the athlete develops? Um, so in reference to developmental versus intermediate to elite. All right, so uh, I think first we have to define training and variability. Uh, just so everyone is on the same page, because uh, I think it's confusing for people sometimes. Training, training is the action of teaching a particular skill or type of behavior. Variability means that something is apt or liable to vary or change. So we're teaching change. We're teaching how to react to change. So as a coach, we want to ensure that we are teaching our athletes to enhance their expression of athleticism. And athleticism has many, many, many components. An athlete's body knows one thing. Go. Therefore, as athletes, or as, as coaches, we must... Uh, alter the task in the environment to teach the body how to go better. And that's change over time. So providing variability during practice allows us as practitioners, as coaches, to evaluate whether critical conditions in development are being achieved. And I consider critical conditions as being those aha moments, those light bulb moments. When you see that they've got it, they picked up what you were putting down as a coach. They can do tasks that they couldn't do previously, and they're getting prepared to do more complex tasks. Um, they're able to assess whether the athletes are picking up on those on those movement tasks. Can they handle the same task with greater intensity? And if yes, try it with greater volume. If still yes, try it now with greater complexity. You know, uh, an, an example of that would be: Can they do a split squat or a split lunge? If they can do a split squat, then you go into a walking lunge. Uh, if they can do walking lunges, add greater complexity. Can they do it now backwards, maybe with a twist? If they can do all of those, then maybe you add resistance. They have all the holes while they're doing it. So then that's a simple example, but that's an example of providing variability at the right moments. Uh, and it's, it's just like everything, it's progressions. It's progressively getting them better at moving with greater intensity, with greater volume, with greater complexity, and then with greater resistance. Um, it's different depending on the athletes that you're working with. So like an eight-year-old kid who loves to play soccer and baseball, well, variability for them, aside from playing soccer and aside from playing baseball, is maybe combine those two together and, hey, let's play kickball. You're combining two things that they have a passion for, put them together into the same sport, that's just slightly different than what they're getting from both ends of the spectrum there with baseball and soccer, but it's something that they're going to enjoy, and it's also going to provide an opportunity for them to polish the skills of kicking, catching, throwing, running, and also the concepts of the games as well. Um, so you know, variability in training allows us to really change, keep our progressions in training safe and enjoyable, provide applicable challenge points, and prevent the monotony of doing the same old training over and over and over again. You know, if your athletes aren't checked in mentally, 
Are we going to have the same transfer of cognitive ability to movement skills of sports? Uh, this is uh, a simply uh, stages of training. And that's what a strength conditioning coach should be doing. You know, first, we've witnessed their acquisition stage. Success is generally determined by the appropriateness of the task imposed upon the athlete and their level or desire to learn. Uh, we are identifying control of movement there. So, you know, next from there, we have the fluency stage, where as coaches, we are looking for increased speed and accuracy of movements for that task. Uh, for example, during uh, cone hops or the hop stick, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the exercises and all the soccer warm-ups nowadays for the ACL prevention stuff. Um, so when they're doing those, we're trying to see that the athlete capable of doing those single leg hops with greater speed between hops and also the landing within the provided area with proficiency. Where we fail our athletes is providing the same stimuli over and over and over. Ideally, we want to see the, the length between, between the cones become longer and some shorter. So that's providing variability. It can vary in the landing patterns, such as the hop stick, hop, hop stick, and so on. So we can't just do the same old movements over and over, especially when we get, we get very, uh, we're very bad at this in our warm-up strategies. We just do the same things over and over. Then athletes just, they're checked out. They're not mentally checked in to do those tasks. They're not necessarily getting better out. Uh, so once we witness the maintenance stage of learning for tasks, that's when we'll start witnessing the athlete's ability to generalize these developmental skills to new contexts within their sport. Then we witness the occurrence of adaptation. That's what we're trying to get to. That's the premise of variability in training, whether for developmental or uh, elite athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, high-level collegiate athletes, to promote further adaptation that may enhance a sports skill, but ultimately allow the body to withstand the stresses placed upon it during the sport. If your body can't withstand the stresses placed upon it, you can't exhibit, you, you can't show those skills that you've been practicing so much for so many years. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's my take on, uh, on variability. Yeah. 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 No. Understood. Um, so, really, when it comes down to it, we're as coaches trying to teach new skills, and of course, this is dependent on the athlete learning and retaining the skill. Um, can you discuss some ways that maybe we can improve retention or how to assess retention? Yeah, and that's. Uh... That's an important part of the learning process of adaptation. You want to adapt, but you also want to retain. So retention is improved via exposure. Uh, so I think Joe uh, Joe Ken uh, with the Panthers said it best a few years back uh, when I saw him at a uh, hammer strength conference, I believe, or it may have been up in Charlotte. But uh, he said, motion is lotion. And I've been using that ever since. Uh, I give him credit for it anytime I do. So we need to ensure that our, our training is like applying lotion to a skill. We're trying to make it smooth rather than you know something that is gritty and wears away over time. If similar movement patterns are being applied in the weight room, on the field, during our warm-up, during our warm-downs, during recovery sessions, mobility sessions, then that is our lotion. Every day is an evaluation of how well it's working for coaches and for the athletes. So we must ensure that obstacles become opportunities that enhance retention of skills. 
you know, this promotes the affirmation of athleticism to the coaches and the athletes while enhancing their depth, their breadth, and their realization of, of their current skill set of athleticism. Uh, we must promote intrinsic feedback sources that detect and correct errors. Because that's the only thing that's always available to the athlete. So we can give our coaching cues, we can provide motivation, but it's the intrinsic feedback sources that are capable of detecting and correcting errors in our movements and our skills. And that's always going to be available to the athletes. So we have to make sure that we're coaching those. We're implementing those into our environment, into our tasks. So coaches aren't always going to be there to provide feedback and affirmation. So this all plays into Dr. Uh, Esther Thielen's work related to dynamical systems theory. Um, so you have the complexity principle, which is the product of interacting parts producing consistent and unified patterns of movement. Secondly, you have the continuity and time principle, which states that athletes are capable of self-organizing in a dynamic state. I see that as being during sport, during activity, based upon previous states. So that's our training. So consistency is key. So if we're getting the same movement patterns in training, on the field, in our mobility sessions, in recovery, that are warm-up, et cetera, so on, again, that's our motion, uh, our lotion for our motion. Uh, and lastly, with Dr. Thielen's uh, um, work, you have the dynamic stability principle, which discusses the process of development and assembling patterns of athleticism to meet the demands of the task given the neurological, biological, and musculoskeletal possibilities at a given time. And what she's simply referring to there is Bernstein's uh, degrees of freedom principle, and in short, it's the exposure to variety that will enhance the uh, efficiency of athletic patterns. And exposure to variety doesn't mean randomness. It's the variety over time. It's are they capable of intrinsically detecting there's a change and then applying it. So, you know, again, variability is the ability to promote change. Just because someone seems to be in a stable state of athleticism doesn't mean that they aren't capable of change. And change can be positive or negative. And that's where, you know, that's why consistency and training development is always important. And that's where planning and periodizing and having an understanding on the, the big picture from 30,000 feet above as a coach comes into, comes into play. You know, furthermore, instability, it doesn't mean that there's a lack of development. It just simply means that the body hasn't been appropriately taught how to optimize what it's capable of. Um, Variability is simply a way to identify and promote change. And ideally, that change is going to be in a positive direction. And that's where being a coach comes in. And that's where utilizing technology comes in. Uh, but that's also dependent on the art and application on behalf of the coach or the ability of the athletes. So you do have to be an artist. You have to be a wise artist, a creative artist. But you also have to be a, um, uh, a technician as well. You have to be able to understand the movement patterns you're trying to see, you're trying to achieve. How do you progress through those? What is the best way to teach it without having to overcoach it? And then what's the long-term outcome going to be? Yeah, excellent. Um, that answered the question 
quite fully. Um, so to wrap to wrap it up here, um, I do want to give you any time you'd like um, to let people know how to reach you on social media by email. Maybe any additional questions they have to what we discussed today. All right. Yeah. Um, email probably going to be the uh, the easiest Appreciate your time again. Um, thanks. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks.